evening. I'm so glad, glad to see you here tonight, and I pray that God will be with us and bless us in the things we do tonight, in study of His Word and in worship to Him. In our democratic society, where freedom of speech is supposed to be a guaranteed right for all citizens, censorship is a hot-button issue. A rather tame example from uh, the news headlines I read earlier this year where some interesting steps have been taken by the publisher of the children's author, Roald Dahl. I think it's, well, I don't want to call out the wrong publisher. So some interesting steps have been taken. Uh, he's the author of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, Matilda, and others. Uh, he passed away in the 90s, I believe. He's been deceased for some time. His books were reviewed by the publisher and found to contain many passages and descriptions that were offensive to many people in modern audiences. And so hundreds of changes were made to his books in new editions that removed some of those offensive things. Among other edits, uh, these editions deleted words like fat, ugly, black, white, mad, and crazy in an effort to make them less offensive for our contemporary readers. One example of the newly modified text in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was describing Augustus Gloop as enormous instead of the original 1964 versions, enormously fat. The new edition of The Witches changed a reference to an, of, uh, to an old hag to an old crow, which I'm not sure exactly what that even means, uh, and altered a line about women working as a cashier in a supermarket or typing letters for a businessman to women who were top scientists or running their own businesses. Well, as Americans, we couldn't stand for that. And the backlash was so intense in America that two editions are going to be sold in America from this point forward, the original version and the edited version. The most extreme example of this kind of censorship, of course, is book burning, destroying the manuscript entirely to try and get rid of the ideas that are contained within the book. And here's my question to begin our lesson. This is just kind of for thought. Are you pro-book burning or anti-book burning? Are you for burning books or against burning books? Tonight we're going to discuss the Bible and book burning and the Bible itself is a book that was commonly burned throughout history. Uh, if you read the Bible in English, I want to ask you to do something tonight. Will you say a prayer of thanksgiving for a man named William Tyndale? Thank God for William Tyndale. He printed the very first English translation of the Bible that was available for wide consumption in 1526, and he distributed copies throughout England. And this Bible sold like hotcakes. But it enraged the Bishop of London who began to hunt down the new Bibles and destroy them. Soon, to our knowledge, only two, two editions remained. And Tyndale himself was ex executed and his body was burned at the stake in 1536, ten years after he published his first Bible. His last words before his execution were a prayer. Lord, open the King of England's eyes. He prayed for kings and all those in authority, even then, for the good of God's kingdom. What was the danger? What was the problem? Why did these Bibles have to be destroyed? Well, the Bible works on the hearts of people. And the bishop feared what would happen if people responded to their own reading and understanding of the word of God, 
And maybe that might undermine the teachings of the church, which is somewhat ironic. Two years later, King Henry VIII ordered the Bible of Miles uh, Coverdale, which was based largely on Tyndale's work, to be used in every parish in the Church of England. And 68 years later, King James commissioned 50 scholars to create the authorized translation, what we know as the King James Bible, in 1611. And so this idea of censorship, the burning of books, the burning of Bibles, is clearly something that we see in history. But what about in the Bible itself? There are actually two places in the Bible where book burnings are recorded in the text. And they present two very different views about God's Word in your life. In fact, the earliest recorded book burning in all of history that we have record of, and we have records of uh, uh, emperors in China burning books going back to the 200s B.C., but the earliest known uh, occasion of someone burning books is actually found in Jeremiah chapter 36. Would you turn there with me, please? Jeremiah chapter 36. This comes from our daily Bible readings. And we're not going to spend a lot of time in Jeremiah 36, but I do want us to see this first example of someone burning a book. In the ancient world, it was very unusual to burn books because books were so expensive. Writing materials were so expensive And they saw the value in having these recorded things that that very few had, that very few could read. And in Jeremiah 36, God instructs Jeremiah to write down his words. In fact, he, Jeremiah, speaks those words, and a scribe named Baruch writes those words down. And Baruch goes into the temple. And he reads the words of Jeremiah's prophecy. By this point, Jeremiah has already been banned from entering the temple at the, uh, at the threat of death. And so Baruch takes Jeremiah's words into the temple. And he reads these words. And there are some other scribes and princes related to the royal family who hear his words in the temple. And, and these words are powerful and these words are important. And they come and they ask Baruch, hey, did Jeremiah tell you to say these things? And he says, yes, Jeremiah told me and I wrote them down. They said, well, can we have this scroll so that we can go and read it to the king? And that's exactly what they do in verse 20 of Jeremiah 36. And they went to the king into the court, but they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elshamah, the scribe, and told all the words in the hearing of the king. And so the king brings the scroll into his chamber, and it's read in his hearing and in the hearing of the princes. Verse 22, now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning in the hearth before him. And it happened when Jehudai had read three or four columns that the king would cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was heard all of these words. And he commands that that people go out and seize Jeremiah, but the Lord hides Jeremiah and Baruch so that they are not taken by the king. This account mirrors the finding of the word of God in the days of Josiah. There are those in the temple who, who find this word of the Lord. They say, this is important. They take it to the king. And in the days of Josiah, Josiah tears his clothes and says, we've got to make some changes. We've got to do something different because I've heard the word of the Lord. On this occasion, the reaction is exactly the opposite. 
The king takes what is said in the word of the Lord, he cuts it up, and he throws it in the fire. I think a good way of summarizing is the king wants to get rid of God's word because it gets in the way of serving himself. God's word was a barrier to what he wanted to do. And so he wanted to burn it so that he didn't have to listen to it, he didn't have to see it, and nobody else saw it either. Well, obviously that's not us, surely. Um, Maybe some applications can be made, but you're here this evening. You're here to receive and hear the word of God. But maybe there is some book burning that we need to do, those of us who love the word of God. Our second occasion of book burning is found in Acts chapter 19. And I want you to turn over there with me now, please, if you would, Acts chapter 19. I asked you earlier if you were uh, pro or anti-book burning. I'm, I'm, I'm an anti-book burning guy myself. But what we find here in Acts chapter 19 is we find Christians who are burning books. In Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11... Paul is in Ephesus. He has been there for some time, probably a couple of years. And God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying... We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. So Paul's power by the Holy Spirit as related to Jesus Christ is getting known far and wide to the point that even these Jewish exorcists figure out if we invoke the name of Jesus, these evil spirits leave these people. And in verse 14, also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. Uh, But their luck runs out in verse 15. And the evil spirit on one of these occasions answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They were messing around with a power here that they did not fully commit to or understand. And it wasn't some magic formula just to say Jesus' name. That's not what worked here. And so, verse 17, this became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was magnified. Then notice verse 18. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. What we find here is really just the opposite of Jeremiah 36. We find Christians want to get rid of man's word because it's getting in the way of serving God. 
This is a great example of what counting the cost and making a full commitment to the Lord looks like. Up to this point, they had believed, in verse 18, many who had believed, they come and they confess their, their deeds. They are confessing their sins and saying, listen, I believed on Jesus before, but maybe I didn't fully appreciate the kind of commitment that was necessary. And so they come confessing their sins to get that sin out of their life. And they even go so far as to burn these magic books. I think this is exactly what Jesus was asking for in Luke chapter 9. Uh, maybe mark your spot in Acts 19, but turn back to Luke chapter 9. We read this passage on Wednesday night, but we didn't really stop to examine it or think about it. But in Luke chapter 9, Wednesday night, if you were here, we talked about how Luke emphasizes discipleship, following after Jesus. And we see a great example of this in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 57. Now it happened, as they journeyed on the road, that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's the first unexpected reaction by Jesus. Verse 59, Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Another unexpected reaction by Jesus. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now... We live in an age where, when it comes to farming, tractors have GPS in them where the guy can just sit in this air-conditioned cabin and sit there and not even touch the wheel, and the tractor just does it itself. But for, you know, the millennia before now, that's not the way it worked. If you put your hand to the plow, now whether that's you're in a tractor or you have a, an ox or a mule that's pulling a plow... You have to keep your attention on what it is you're doing. And if you look back, what's going to happen? That row is going to get all kinds of nasty. Well, same thing happens when we're driving, right? What happens when we reach back to hit at the kids? Well, then we hit that little buzzer on the side of the road, right? So Jesus is saying, if you've committed to do what it is I've called you to do, you need to keep your focus on what it is you're supposed to be doing. So we have these three sort of things here that, that talk about our commitment to following Christ. We do not see the response of these people in Luke chapter 9. We see what Jesus tells them, rebuking each of these three. Do you think they responded positively or negatively to Jesus' rebuke? I don't know why, but I think we generally assume that they responded negatively. And yet, throughout the Bible, we see all kinds of disciples, followers, who responded positively. People like Elisha, and Peter and Andrew, and James and John, and Lydia, and Paul, and Timothy, and so many more, even in this room. And the disciples that we just read about in Acts chapter 19, responding to the concept that Jesus is expressing here in the Gospel of Luke. When challenged to follow now, at any cost, so many have answered that call. 
And this high expectation was ultimately met with enthusiastic commitment. Maybe not at first, but when rebuked or challenged or convicted by something that happened, maybe convicted by what Jesus says right here in our text, they responded as they should have. And these folks in Acts chapter 19, when they were convicted, when they were rebuked by the things that happened to these Jewish uh, exorcists, they responded in the way that they should have. So this evening, notice with me three points from Luke chapter 9 that are illustrated in Acts chapter 19. Number one, we see in Luke chapter 9 that is illustrated so well in the book burning in Acts chapter 19, the importance of seeing the need for total commitment to Christ. In Acts chapter 19, these folks thought that they could do both. They thought that they could practice some of their old deeds, that they could keep these old magic books that they have. They thought that they could do that and still believe in Jesus and follow after him until, until they saw otherwise, that this was an all-or-nothing proposition. The incident with the sons of Sceva showed them the need for total commitment, that Jesus is not some magic name that we can invoke when it suits our purposes. We must be totally loyal and devoted to Him. It is a matter of priority and sacrifice. What is sacrifice? I think a good general definition, I heard this first from Russ Bowman. Sacrifice is giving up something you want for something you want more. Sometimes it's not even giving up something bad. Sometimes it's just giving up something that is not as good. I don't think there was anything inherently sinful in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 for someone to go and bury their father. Is there anything wrong with that? I don't think there's anything wrong to go and bid farewell to people who are in your house. But if those things come first, if those things interfere with our service to God, we have to sacrifice them. We have to give up something we want for something we want more. This first man in the account in Luke chapter 9, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. That's the perfect definition of what a, a disciple is. But Jesus responds to him and says, it's not always going to be easy. So you need to be sure. You need to be totally committed before you make that commitment. I want us to turn back to Acts chapter 19 again. Let's read verses 15 through 17 one more time. But this time I want you to see them through the lens of the things that we just read in Luke chapter 9. Let's start there in verse 17. This became known, this incident with the sons of Sceva became known, both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. His name should have been the greatest name in their hearts and minds and lips to begin with, but now he is being magnified. He's being made greater in their lives and in the lives of others. So Jesus was magnified, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. You know, this was probably the talk of the town for weeks, this little incident, because it's funny. 
isn't it? It's funny that this, this spirit says, well, I know Jesus, I know Paul, but I don't know you. And then he beats them up and they run naked and afraid. And what people came to know about Jesus was that this was more than just the magic that they had known throughout their lives. That this was not something to be trifled with. And so any ancient town of any size, and Ephesus was certainly that, would have had sorcerers and uh, magicians in it. If anyone could have seen that Christianity was a trick, it would have been these people. And yet these are the very ones, some of them, who are willing to give up their magic for Christianity. For whatever reason, they had been holding back and holding out these things from their past instead of fully committing to Christ. But now they did. Now they fully committed. And that commitment is seen in a a monetary value. They burned 50,000 pieces of silver worth of books. I've I've seen a number of people try to equate that to modern uh, money. What we do know is that that is hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of magic books. And, and the actual amount is only what they would have brought if they had been sold. But they're giving up much more than just money here. They are giving up their livelihood. It is those who practiced magic who brought this. At the very least, this was their, what we call today, their side hustle, right? This is what they did on the side to make a little extra money. They're giving up a monetary value of the books themselves and whatever money could have been made off of those books in the future. And secondly, they're giving up a strong and important connection to their heritage and their physical past. In some cases, these books were probably passed down for generations upon generations upon generations. And what they are doing is truly forsaking all to follow him. People were giving up paganism because they could see the power and truth of Christianity. And so the word of the Lord was spreading... And these folks were now committed. They were the kind of people who would confess their sins and preach the gospel with nothing held back in total reliance to God because His grace was sufficient for them in their lives now. And so we see the importance of seeing the need for total commitment to God, but we also see two big dangers that are emphasized in both of these texts. One of the dangers is the danger of physical relationships, our heritage, our past, uh, all the things that, that we are physically that have brought us to this point. And then the other big danger is the danger of being sucked back into our old life making provisions for the flesh. And so the first point, the importance of seeing the need for total commitment to Christ, is in opposition to the second and third points. Uh, These physical relationships, our heritage, can sometimes drag us away from that commitment. And there's always this danger of being sucked back into our old life, of making provisions for the flesh where we can go back to that old life if all of this Christianity stuff doesn't work out. Uh, That language is specifically found in Romans chapter 13. If you'll turn over there, Romans chapter 13. Let's read 11 through 14 together. You love your neighbor, you fulfill the law, all the things you submit to the government, all of the things that he's been talking about in this chapter. Verse 11, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. 
For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. We're, we're all getting closer to the day of judgment. We're all getting closer to eternity. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. How do we keep from making provisions for the flesh? Well, we must destroy those provisions. We must destroy the paths back to that way of life. They burned these things. And it reminds me a little bit of Elisha in 1 Kings 19, 19 through 21. Elisha was a farmer, and when he is called by Elijah, what did he do to make sure that he couldn't go back to farming? He killed his oxen, he sacrificed them, he cooked them using the tools that he would use for farming in order to make the fire upon which he burned them. There was no way for him to go back to that life. And so we need to be careful of the danger of physical relationships, our heritage, our past that gets in the way of our service to God. And the danger of being sucked back into that old life because we've made provisions for the flesh to go back to it. That's exactly what these magic books were. They were a reminder of where these people came from and the way things had worked in their family and their lives for years and years and years. And they were a way back to that life if they ever chose to go back to it. I think to some degree all of us understand the dangers of these two things. Uh, I come from a family that is very close. Uh, I grew up in a, in a family that was, was very, very close, immediate family. Uh, even today, the extended family, the family that I come from, is, is very close, very tight-knit. There's uh, a lot of history there. There's a lot of commitment to the family and the things of the family there. But even when I think about my immediate family, which are great, wonderful Christian people, I got to know them a few weeks ago a little bit better. There have been times in my life where if I made, if I made a decision based on what my family wanted me to do, based on what was best for the family, it would have absolutely not would have been, not would have been, would not have been what was best for me spiritually. Absolutely not. And that is a very, very difficult thing to do. And it is an easy thing. It is an easy thing to make provision for the flesh to say, well, I'm not actually going to go back to that life, but I'm going to leave some avenues where I could if I needed to. So what application do we make um, from these burning of the magic books? Two applications. Number one, a question. Are there any magic books that we need to burn in our own lives? Are there any magic books that you need to burn in your life that are, that are a barrier to you fully committing yourself to Christ? 
Maybe it's provision for sin. Maybe there is sin in your life and there is a way that you can go back to that sin over and over if you so choose and you need to remove that provision for the flesh. Um, I don't know if I've ever told this here before. Uh, when I was in college, um, I remember there was one afternoon where I was working, walking back to the dorm and on my way back there was kind of a a side path, like a main path to the dorm and a little side path. And I was walking along this side path back to the dorm. And just outside the door, uh, there were all of these like crushed computer parts. And I learned later on that there was a brother in Christ who was struggling mightily with pornography. And he had had enough and he went outside and he broke his laptop. He broke his laptop on the pavement. And he spent the rest of the semester going to the library to do his work so they wouldn't be tempted. You know what he did? He burned his magic book. And obviously with that temptation and all temptations, there is heart work that must be done. But the first thing we have to do is stop the bleeding by making no provision for the flesh. Maybe it's relationships that are detrimental to and undermining our relationship with God, where we need to put clear boundaries to make sure that we're influencing those people and they're not the ones who are influencing us. Maybe it's not explicitly sinful things, but time wasters and distractions, hobbies we need to quit, or social media or streaming accounts we need to delete. Maybe, like these folks in Acts chapter 19, it's partially a heritage thing. That is what my grandparents believed religiously. This is what my parents believed religiously. And I'm going to believe it too. Or maybe it's not even a religious conviction per se, but the expectation of what the world looks like that has been handed down from our forefathers. These people had these magic books because that's what everybody did. That's the trade that they had been taught or this family had had this book and it had been used through the years and this is just what you do in our family. Maybe, maybe we have expectations of what a man is. This is what a marriage looks like. This is how you raise kids. This is my perspective on what gender roles are. And maybe someone else has written the book for us, but it is not according to the principles of the Word of God. In that case, we need to burn those books so that we might be only what God has called us to be. But number two, and I think these balance out well, as Christians, we should burn our own magic books. And we do not have the right to force of forcefully burn the magic books of others. The text is explicit in Acts chapter 19 that many came confessing their sins and they brought their books. There was no going house to house rounding up the books of others. And too often I'm afraid we are a lot better at seeing the stumbling block of others rather than our own. Was there anything else that they could have done with these books instead of burning them? I, I suppose so. Perhaps they could have sold them or buried them. Certainly they could have written over them with something else. 
But it was their choice. And Christianity is a voluntary religion. And especially when it comes to convictions outside of what is revealed, another way to put that is opinions, judgments, we should not bind where God has not bound. And we need to be very careful about how forcibly we express our own opinions about what a Christian ought to do if it is not what is some, something that is taught in the Word of God. I, I've fallen to, into this trap. I'm sure, you're, I'm sure you're surprised to hear that. I've never had any strong opinions on anything my entire life. Now, I have strong opinions, and I have things that I, that I feel strongly about, that this is the best way for a Christian to live, that this is the correct understanding of how we fulfill this command of God. I have some strong opinions about some of those things. Uh, a few years ago, I was talking with a very close brother in Christ who, who lives in another state. Uh, we have a lot of discussions about a lot of different things, and, and we don't always agree on stuff. And so we've had some lively debates, and, and, and usually those debates are... Um, very loving, you know, it's not, it's not a bad thing. We're just iron sharpening iron. But there was one time where he had uh, an opinion on something, a, a conviction on something, and we're going back and forth about what the Bible teaches and what I believe he is allowed to do. In this instance, his opinion was more restrictive than what my opinion was. And so we went back and forth and we debated back and forth about this thing. And finally he said, man... I think this is what I have to do, and I don't know why you can't support me in doing it. Instantly, I backed off. If this is your conviction, if this is what you believe you have to burn, the book you have to burn in order to serve God, then I support you in it. Even though I don't feel like I have to burn the same book myself. And so we need to be very careful. We need to be very careful that when we're enforcing the law of God, that it is the law of God. But in Acts chapter 19, the conviction of many of them, not all of them apparently, but many of them, was to burn these books. And that conviction removed all temptation. How does Acts chapter 19 end? Um, not, not the chapter, but this particular uh, account in verse 20. How does it end? So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The word of God grew mightily and prevailed in Acts chapter 19. But I think that also happened in Jeremiah 36. Because after that book was burned in Jeremiah chapter 36, what happens next? Go back to Jeremiah and the 36th chapter. In verse 27, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and he tells him that you need to take another scroll and write on it all the things that you wrote on that first scroll that the king of Judah burned. And in verse 32, that's exactly what Jeremiah does. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And besides, there were added to them many similar words. God's word cannot and will not be stopped, except, except by the heart of the unrepentant. God's word is going to grow mightily. God's word is going to prevail. And the only thing that's going to stop that word from prevailing in your life is if you choose to reject it.
So are you willing to look into the mirror of God's Word and accept what it shows you and do whatever is required to commit yourself totally to Christ? Are you willing for the Word of God to grow mightily and prevail in your life, even if that means burning the magic books? Burning the magic books of provisions for the flesh, burning the magic books of history and heritage in the past, taking care of all of those things that are a barrier and stumbling block to our service to God. Are you willing? Are you willing to do that this evening? If you are, we'll support you in that if you come now while together we stand and while we sing.